The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live. My name is Greg Robb. I'm the economics editor at MarketWatch. And we have a really special program today. We're joining us is Jason Furman. Jason was the former top economic advisor to President Obama, and he's now teaching at Harvard. He teaches the famous EC10 class. I think it's one of the largest classes at Harvard about the economics. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Uh, great, great to be here. Let's get into it. We have a lot of audience questions and people and everyone who's listening, please, so you can still submit questions. Um, I'd like to do this. The, the Fed has started meeting. They have a two-day meeting. Tomorrow we'll get their decision. So this is a good time where you can kind of assess where the economy is and where you, we think the Fed is going to go. And um, they're locked in a room and can't hear us. So let's let's talk about that. Uh, the Fed has been pushing up interest rates, Jason, really quickly, uh, 500 basis points over 16 months. They're trying to get the sense of when they've done enough. Um, what's your view on how on that question? Yeah, so Greg, it might be that we're on track for a soft landing and they've already done enough. Um, if that's the case, it's you know where the momentum of the economy already is. And I think it would still be lucky to get that outcome. We can talk more about that. Um, I think the thing is, though, that most of the impact that their rate cuts has had on the economy is in the rearview mirror. The Fed funds rate doesn't affect the economy. It affects the stock market. Well, that's going up now, not down. Um, it affects corporate borrowing costs in the bond market. Those are lower than where they were you know, nine months ago. It affects the dollar. That's actually been weakening lately, which helps our exporters. Um, the one respect in which conditions are tighter today than they had been earlier is, um, is, is lending terms at banks. So most of the way the Fed affects the economy, it basically was fully in effect about 12 months ago. And you've even seen it work through. You know, housing was creamed in 2022 but it's been rebounding um, so far this year. So I don't see another wave of contraction coming unless the Fed surprises us with more interest rate increases above and beyond what everyone's expecting. So what everyone's, the Fed has penciled in two more hikes. Many economists on Wall Street are sort of cottoned onto this idea that they can do one more tomorrow and stop. What's your sense there? Do you think they have to do more than two, two or more? Or? Right. I think they're going to need to come back after tomorrow. Will they come back in September? You know, I don't know. Obviously, they'll be very data dependent, but you know, I don't think they can allow inflation to stabilize above 3%. I think if it stabilizes at three and a quarter, that's a problem for them. I think that absent a recession, that we're roughly in a world of three and a half percent inflation right now. 
that financial conditions are still not particularly tight in some respects they've eased and so that and, and fiscal policy by the way is is expansionary um at the current moment and so at some point the fed's going to need um to come back to it much more likely to have to hike again than that they can cut after tomorrow's meeting i mean where do you think the terminal rate is do you think it might be six percent or a little bit less What's your sense? I think around 6% is um, the terminal rate. But look, I think the good thing in what the market is expecting right now and what the Fed says is that they're increasingly in sync in terms of not expecting rate cuts. Um, the market's not pricing in any rate cuts um, this year after tomorrow's increase this year. They're not even pricing in any, I think, in the first quarter or next year. So the market is increasingly believing the Fed's higher for longer. Um, so in that sense, I don't think expectations are quite as out of whack as they have sometimes been in the past, where the market really thought the Fed was just going to chicken out and cut rates quickly, um, something they keep telling us they're not going to do. Talk a little bit about the June CPI report that really was a game changer for many people. Many people think thought that you know inflation now is on that road to 2%. What struck you? Was that you know, Pollyannish a little bit or just too much enthusiasm? Look, the June report was the best report we've gotten in the last three years on inflation, but it was one month's data. Um, now, there's different ways of slicing and dicing the inflation data. And in particular, if you do things like focus on new rent rather than all rent, because the rent category, the shelter category is lagging, the numbers started to look good. Um, even before June, but June was the first month that no matter how you looked at the data, um, it looked good. Previously, you had, you know, looking at it from this angle, it looked okay, looking at it from that angle, um, less so. So you know, that, that caused me to revise my views. I became a little bit more positive and optimistic, but it's still one month's data. We've still seen much bigger improvements for the CPI than for another measure, which is the one that the Fed is focused on, which is called the PCE. Um, partly, we may have some transitory good news out of falling energy prices, which bleeds through um, throughout the economy. And fundamentally, I look at the labor markets, they look very tight. Wage growth is still well above a pace that I think is consistent with inflation stabilizing at 2% or probably even at 3%. So tomorrow when the Powell press conference, what do you, what do you expect the we can learn from the chairman just how they're going to react to the data going forward is that is that the thing to how they're thinking about things going forward is that is that the yeah key? i mean obviously they're going to raise by 25 basis points the second obvious point is that jay powell has no idea what they're going to do in september because he's going to get two cpi reports plus a raft of other data um, before then which will really make the decision the question is does he give a little bit more clarity on, let's say inflation is running at three and a half percent. Are they willing to stop the interest rate increases and hope that eventually inflation comes down? Or are they going to keep actively fighting it? Um, that to me is the most important aspect of the reaction function. Um, the other thing is at some point, and I don't think we're going to get this clarity this week, but at some point we do need more clarity about what is victory for the Fed. Do they need to get inflation down to 2.0? Is 2.9 okay, which I think it should be? Um, is 3.5 okay, which I think it shouldn't be? 
Um, so where, you know, what, what is their true goal here? Um, I don't know that it is the same as the 2.0 that they keep saying um, over and over again. What's the, you know, many people ask us, we have some questions that John has asked us the question about quantitative tightening. What's your view on that? And do you think that the Fed will just continue that for a while? It, they, are, they are slowly reducing their balance sheet, but it, it is kind of slow going. Yeah, I think that they have just decided correctly, in my view, that they have two instruments, the balance sheet and interest rates. Interest rates are the more important one. And so that rather than every six weeks come and debate both instruments, they've put one of them on autopilot. Um, the balance sheet is just the tightening. It's the same amount every month. That's on autopilot. I think it'll be a high bar to revisit that. And so if they need to make adjustments, they have this other instrument um, that they've uh, done, which is the interest rates. And that's what all their conversation and um, debate is about. Um, I don't mind the slow pace of asset reductions because, again, the interest rates are what matters. Um, and frankly, I don't mind the Fed having a large balance sheet. Um, it has, I think, a lot of advantages in terms of providing liquidity um, in the system, in some ways, um, uh, you know, providing an asset that otherwise is in short supply, which is very short duration, um, you know, very safe, very liquid. So uh, I'm less worked up about them, um, you know, dramatically reducing their balance sheet. One more question, then I'll go to some of the questions from the audience. The credit crunch, when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and it kind of led to some contagion there and a lot of worries about the banking system. You know, people were talking about a credit crunch that banks were going to pull, not lend as much and they were going to raise their standards. We've had some time now. What, what, do, you, what do you view that at risk? Is that, yeah, we'll leave it there. Right. I think the banking turmoil is turned out to be quite a low risk and quite a small factor um, in the economy. Um, for what it's worth, it's roughly what I thought when it hit, but I had a certain amount of nervousness, and I'd say the tail risks haven't panned out. Um, two different things to look at. First, let's look at market-based financial conditions. These aren't necessarily the most important, but they're the easiest to measure. Um, the stock market is up, I think, more than 12% since uh, just prior to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, corporate bond uh, borrowing costs are down about 20 basis points. Uh, mortgage costs are basically about the same, maybe they drifted up a couple basis points. Um, and the dollar is weaker. So all of that says the market-based stuff is actually more expansionary than it was the day before the problems emerged at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, now, you know, the non-market, you know, what are the terms and conditions? Can you get a loan um, and the like? You know, credit conditions have tightened. I think they've largely tightened in sort of the linear fashion that the Fed was trying to accomplish and roughly in the manner they would have even without the problem at Silicon Valley Bank as opposed to some non-linear financial crisis-like um, thing. And then finally, the health of the banking system, um, deposits are increasing again. And you know, the main way we would have a banking crisis in this country is if deposits became really unsticky. Um, otherwise, the franchise value of banks actually goes up when interest rates go up. Higher interest rates mean they can lend money at a higher rate. They don't pass uh, that interest rate increase along nearly as much to their, uh, their depositors. 
And so those interest rates can really help the banks. And I think that's what we're seeing now uh, with the deposits, with the earnings, with everything else. I would be remiss if I didn't follow up, though, on this question about a recession, um, soft landing. I heard you put like 30% chance of a soft landing. That means a 70% chance of recessions. Is that well, where you are these days? Well, there's other options here. Okay. I'm just trying to solve, you know, there's two risks to a soft landing. One is a recession, then it wouldn't be a soft landing. The other is that inflation stays above 3% is the threshold that I like to use. So high inflation is the so-called no landing scenario. Then there's the recession. And then there's the worst of all worlds, um, which at this point I think is actually unlikely, but, you know, still a possibility, which is you get a recession and you have inflation above 3%. Um, you know, the recession risk, I don't think is particularly elevated um, at the current moment. I mean, there's risks in commercial real estate. Um, those are real, but the banking sectors we've just been talking about is largely fine. We're seeing a fiscal expansion. Households are seeing rising real earnings for the first time. They're not dug out of the hole they were in, but they're digging uh, their way out. So I think the big threat is not a hard landing, but it's a no landing. And that's because the tightness of labor markets, the underlying inertia of wage price setting process gives us an underlying inflation rate um, that absent a recession to me looks a lot more like three and a half percent than any other number. And that would not be, um, you know, that wouldn't be a landing. And that's a threat because it would just leave the problem down the road, kind of make it. Yeah. 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 Look, I mean, there's always a time horizon question. over the next 50 years of course we're gonna have a recession um so yeah i think inflation you know not particularly elevated recession risk that means inflation stays above three that means the fed will need to come back to this problem and that could well mean that they're going to force the economy into a recession at some point um but you know maybe that's a year year and a half uh two years from now Thank you so much. And let's wade into some of the questions now that we have. And thank you, everyone, for participating. Question from Brian. He said he wants to talk about fiscal policy a little bit. He says, does these infrastructure programs, are are they making a large impact to the economy? And will they over the next 12 months? And what sectors in the economy do you see growing from those? Yeah. So the combination of infrastructure, chips, and the IRA for climate change, Inflation Reduction Act for climate change, the three of those are having a really profound sectoral impact. Um, you see a dramatic increase, for example, in uh, manufacturing construction going on um, right now. Um, but they're also um, putting upward pressure on inflation. You see a big increase in prices uh, for construction, and they're putting upward pressure on interest rates. I think the Fed probably would have been done were it not for the additional fiscal stimulus that we're getting um, right now. Uh, My guess is on aggregate, in terms of where the economy would be a year or two from now, um, its aggregate size won't be that different. The Fed is not going to let these things lower the unemployment rate below where it wants the unemployment rate to be. They're going to be able to offset any additional stimulus from it. But it does mean we're going to end up with a mixture of sort of higher interest rates, higher mortgage rates than we otherwise would have had. Um, and so basically you'll get the crowd out scenario, you know, more investment in the sectors the government is targeting, but somewhat higher interest rates, higher mortgage rates, and thus less investment 
in um, the sectors they're not targeting with it all working out to be roughly the same um, in terms of the macro aggregates. I heard Larry Summers this morning say that uh, the deficit situation and the government, you know, the, our books are, it's worse than he's seen, you know, in his time in Washington and that we should get busy on, you know, and he's getting fiscal house in order. Are you, what do you think about that? Is that Look, I, I am worried, but I'm not panicked. Um, you know, the first thing to say is, you know, how does the deficit hurt the economy? It hurts the economy by driving up interest rates, crowding out activity in other sectors of the economy. The real interest rate right now, you know, the rate adjusted for inflation on 10-year treasuries is 1.5%. That is much higher than it was in 2019 when it was basically zero, but it's still lower than where it was um, for most of the last several decades, if you use measures that are that are comparable to that. So I don't, you know, in the early 90s, for example, it was a big problem for businesses, how high interest rates were. It made it hard to borrow, hard to get activity going. Um, we're just not seeing that um, in a big way right now. But what does worry me is the deficit this year, the last 12 months, has been about 6 or 7% of GDP. And this is a good year. The unemployment rate's 3.5%. Stock market was down, but now it's, it's up quite a lot again. And so if you're running a deficit of that magnitude in a good year, what's the deficit going to look like in a recession? What's the deficit going to look like if there's an emergency? And so it's more the prospect of, no one's really worried about this and it's way far from where it should be right now. We're not sort of using good times to build up any sort of cushion that worries me. But, you know, if we take five years to solve this problem, I think that's fine. Um, if we take 15 years before we pay any attention, I think that would be a problem. And I'm worried we're on the 15 year track, not the five year track, but there is, there really is time to act here. Thanks so much for that. Another question from uh, Jill, and she talks about how the U.S. is the global consumer of last resort. And, um, she, you know, how can the Fed get inflation down when people are, you know, just spending almost, you know, I don't know if in excess, but, you know, American consumers do spend a lot of money. Yeah, look, I mean, you look at where consumption is now compared to pre-pandemic forecasts, it's about 2% above what was expected. And what's remarkable about that is income is about 2.5% below what was expected. So you have high spending and low income. Um, I've been expecting that consumption to fall and to fall back to something um, more normal, especially as households have you know, exhausted a lot of their financial resources they got during the pandemic are starting to run their credit cards um, up again. But there is one big thing that's helping keep consumer spending going, which is real wages are finally rising. Um, the favorable shocks we've seen to energy, you know, energy prices falling and the like has given people, you know, more room in their budgets to um, to spend money. So yeah, I, I keep expecting consumer spending to slow. Um, American consumers keep astonishing me uh, by how much they're going on. And, you know, at some point it'll slow, but uh, 
you know, maybe not by a lot. Um, they do have some basis for continuing it. A question from, uh, let's see this one. Oh, yeah, from Martin, who is helping me out by asking a question I should have asked before. He says, you know, what percentage of inflation do you attribute to the labor costs? Uh, given the scarcity of labor, rising minimum wages, and upcoming union contract negotiations, how reasonable is it inflation is likely to be reduced to 2% over the next 24 months? Right. So much, yeah. Yeah, so no one has been able to untangle the direction of causation between wages and prices. And I think it's because the direction of causation is both ways. Um, prices affect wages and wages affect prices and both of them do it with various lags. And so um, I think we do have, you know, you look at the pace of wage growth right now, we're gonna get the best data we get um, this later this week, the employment cost index based on the other more imperfect or more lagged measures, um, you know, it looks like wage growth is running about two percentage points faster than normal, maybe one and a half percentage points faster than normal. And so if that continues, you'd expect uh, prices to grow at one and a half to two percentage points faster than normal. So three and a half or four percent um, inflation. There are probably more places, though, where wage growth is slowing than where it's increasing. Um, the question mentioned the minimum wage and union contracts. Those are places where it's increasing. Um, but there's a lot of other businesses that are slowing their pace of wage growth. So sort of net net, I think wage growth might continue to drift down, but it's still just a lot higher than I would expect um, in a war, you know, to be consistent with two or three percent inflation. What about this theory that inflation would not fully, you know, fall? absent, you know, a significant job destruction. Yeah. My view, and I think the theory and the evidence, uh, always was that there's something nonlinear out there, that some of the inflation was genuinely transitory and would go away on its own. Some of the inflation would go away relatively easily as things started to normalize in labor markets, but the last part of the inflation would be uh, much more costly. Um, so the transitory part of the inflation has gone away as supply chains have unsnarled and as energy prices are falling, not rising. And in fact, the transitory part of inflation may be negative right now. It may be having a favorable um, supply shock. Um, the labor market has loosened some in the form of um, job openings have fallen. The quit rates has fallen, even though the unemployment rate hasn't risen. Um, I had in September of 2022... Um, put together an analysis where I said I expected us to get two-thirds of the way back to where we were before on um, the openings rate without the unemployment rate rising, and that's sort of roughly playing out. So um, we've had a bit more disinflation than I expected painlessly. Um, I thought we'd be sort of half a point worse than where we are right now, so I am pleasantly surprised, but I don't think we've learned anything that would rule out really any hypothesis about what it takes to get to an inflation rate of 2.9, let alone um, 2.0 from the easy disinflation that we've already seen. So the unemployment rate could rise here is, you know, the Fed has penciled in 4.5%. It doesn't look like we're in, by the end of the year. That doesn't look like it's in train. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, inflation just bounces and it's bounced in a good way lately. It could bounce, you know, up again. Um, and you, know, you just, I think one of the mistakes of the last several years is sort of assuming everything goes right and nothing goes wrong. So yeah, lag shelter pans out well. And, you know, auto used car prices keep falling, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, inflation will be good, but there's, you know, health costs could go up. There's other things that could go um, the other direction. And so that's why that narrow, that soft landing is still, you know, the wider path than it used to be, um, but it's not yet the only path forward for the economy. Next question was from Anthony, and he's talking about this, the Biden administration lost the Supreme Court case on student loan forgiveness, and now uh, students are going to have to start repaying, and all people are going to have to start repaying them, I guess, October-ish. Is that going to have a big effect on the on the economy when they start up again? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, it's going to have a big effect on some people who are not fully prepared for this, and in some ways, you know, the evidence is what did people do um, who got student loan relief? Well, they borrowed a lot more money elsewhere, and so now they're going to have their student loan debt starting, and they have all the other debt they accumulated given that they had more room for it. So there's a lot of people um, this is going to be painful for, frankly. I think it would have been less painful if the payments had resumed a lot earlier. I don't think the government did anyone a favor by having this last so long. Um, in terms of the macro economy, though, you're talking about about $5 billion of payments per month. Um, and for you know, some people will be able to handle that perfectly fine, sort of go through the math that works out to you know one or two tenths off of either inflation, consumption, or some combination of We're getting down to the finish line here. A couple more questions, and thank you again for joining us, and thanks for everyone for participating. That because, you know, there's maybe some people see the end in sight to, you know, this inflation spurt. There's a, a debate has arisen about what we're going to see afterwards. And, you know, some economists think that we're going to go back to that period we had just a couple of years ago where it's, interest rates are super low and, you know, mortgage rates could be back to 2%. And or some people think, no, that the level of interest rates will kind of be higher. And they, they, they circle around this theory called R-star. I was wondering if you could unpack that and, and also tell me where you fit into that in the, in that argument. Do you think we're going to like have higher interest rates when we're out of this, or we're going to go back to that low interest rate environment? Yeah, I think we are going to end up at a higher R star than where we went into this. But even with that higher R star, it'll be lower than where it was 15, 20 plus um, years ago. Um, let's look at it, the real rate for the 10-year government borrowing. Right now, that's about 1.5 um, in the market. And I think that roughly feels about right to me. Um, most of the structural forces that drove interest rates down, like inequality and slow productivity growth, they're still with us. And so that downtrend in interest rates, I think, is was real. I think it is durable. But we have 30 percentage points more government debt than we had before. When you have that, you expect to have interest rates about 70 basis points, 75 basis points higher. Um, so I think largely the government borrowing has driven real interest rates up. But, um, you know, you're still talking about North Star that 
you know, would be pleasantly surprising if you told someone, uh, you know, 25 years ago what it was. Is there a way for people to kind of look what R Star is? How would, you know, how would people kind of get a sense of it? Um, yeah. Is there any way to do that or just? I mean, look, there's, you know, these uh, Laubach Williams regressions and other ways to estimate it. They have huge yeah. error bands um, around them. Sort of, frankly, I don't think you can improve that much on where interest rates are right now right. and where real interest rates are projected um, to be. And that's one way of doing it. And another way is sort of take what you think was our star at a point in time and then have a model that updates it based on what's changed in the economy. But our star is, is the, the rate of people would borrow at or like the natural rate where people would borrow our oh, star is where interest rates need to be in normal times so that the amount of borrowing that people want to do and the amount of lending they want to do is sort of lined up and, and consistent with full um full employment um, but I have to say, you know, am I sure about this? No, but I'm, I, I think we understand this one a tiny bit better than the even more important economic variable, which is productivity. Um, productivity growth has been slower sort of from prior to the pandemic to the present the last three and a half years than it was before then. You know, are we going to go back to our old productivity growth, nothing even higher because of AI? Um, to me, that's like the most important question in the economy and one I have even less insight into. Um, than our star. Glad you asked those questions that I should have asked, but so you don't know if we're going to get a productivity rebound? You know, what's your sense? I, I'm a, I feel like I'd count myself lucky if we went back to the 1.8% productivity growth, which is what we had in the years before the pandemic, which was considered sort of disappointing new normal, you know, not that great, but you know, I'd be sort of pleasantly surprised if we get that back. And I think AI may be enough to get that back for us. Finally, before I let you go, I, th I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about Harvard and the admissions to Harvard. It's been in the news all summer. Um, what's your view on like legacy admissions to Ivy League schools? I think we should get rid of legacy admissions. I think we should dramatically reduce the role that athlete admissions play. And I think we should be more careful about all the sort of non-academic special skills. I think we should still have great poets and great actors and even great athletes here, um, but maybe not quite as much weight on that as we have now. And, and this amazing new research by my colleagues has really documented um, the size and um, scale this now there is a difficult thing you know if you did admissions purely on merit you'd still have a very disproportionately represented top one percent um because you know pre the preparation is real um you know you go to andover exeter you're really well prepared um to to go to a school like harvard and to succeed um so i don't think that colleges are ever going to be able to fully level the playing field but i think they can do a, a much better job than they've done. And, and I hope this research helps uh, impel them to do that. Many people feel you know, that income inequality in the United States is something that really should be kind of tackled and we should make some progress on it. How, how would you go about that? I mean, if people felt that that was the, something that was a priority for them, 
How could we change? Yes. I, I mean, what Harvard does with its admissions is going to have a small impact on that. But sure. I'm of the view that, you know, you should do everything you can. Leave no stone unturned. So do the small things, do the medium things, do the large things. So inequality has many causes. And there's you know a long list of how we should solve it. Um, education, more like improving K for 12 education, expanding preschool, I think is though the, the biggest single lever that we have, but it's hard to pull that lever. And even if you did, it would take time for it to be making a, a big difference. Well, again, let me thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I hope that our viewers saw this as an educational and enlightening and um, I'm Greg Robin. I also have to tell you about the program tomorrow on Barron's Live. And let me find that information. I have the, Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's, is going to be joined by Janet Sook. She's managing director and portfolio manager at Clarion Partners. And she's going to talk about private real estate and investment portfolio and opportunities in today's market. So please join us and keep coming back to Barron's Live. And um, thank you so much. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.